And if you could turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. How are we going to reach people in this town? That's the question that I was asked by a sister in our church family this past week. I wish you could have been there. I wish you could have seen the care and the compassion on her face, the longing in her eyes, the the earnestness and urgency in her voice. I was so encouraged by her heart as she sat across the table from me and asked that question. And further, when she expressed, people need to be reached. We need to draw them in. (laughs) And then we talked a bit about an idea she had for that. Did you know that Jesus gave some very specific instructions about exactly this question and this desire? I was reading about it this week, and God revealed some really cool connections to me about his son in Matthew's biography of his life, things I hadn't ever seen before. I love when God does that. There's actually part of this story, chapter 9, verse 35 to 11, verse 1, and the overall story of of Matthew's biography of Jesus, that for ages, theologians have called the mission discourse. Did you know that about Matthew 9, 35 to 11, 1? Anybody? I didn't know it either. I'd never heard that before, the mission discourse. I think you're going to see that it makes a lot of sense. It's this section and the story leading up to it that sheds light for us on a far more famous section of Matthew's story, which appears at the very end of his story. We all know it as what? What happens at the very end? The Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. But here's the thing, right? The Great Commission didn't just get plopped down by Jesus in front of the disciples at the very end of the story of his life before he ascends to the Father. It didn't just get plopped down and they're just like, well, what's all this? Well, this is brand new. Where did this come from? You see, I don't think that that commission was shocking to them. I don't think it was a twist at the end of the story. It wasn't a surprise to them. See, I think it was actually expected. They would have seen it coming quite a ways off because it was the reasonable conclusion and outcome to the way of Jesus' life that they had seen and been a part of for three plus years. It was a natural conclusion to the mission that he had already involved them in before the Great Commission, as we call it, came along. In other words, the commission had come actually far earlier in the story. So that what we find in chapter 28 is really just a restatement and affirmation of a commission that had already been given. I'd like to show it to you this morning. But before I do, just a couple of things before we make our way in. This morning is going to be pretty high level as we wrap up our missions month this year. I'm going to introduce you to some really straightforward teaching from Jesus about outreach and missions. And my main aim is to present this discourse discourse with actually minimal exposition. I simply want to get it in front of you. I want you to always remember, when you think about outreach and missions, Matthew 9, 35 to 11, 1. I want you to know, when when I want to know what I should do, that's a place that you go as a disciple of Jesus. 
And then what we're all going to have to do is, is two things. One, we're going to have to trust the Holy Spirit to point out the particular pieces from these instructions that the Holy Spirit wants you to take as next steps in your life of following Jesus. That's the first thing we're going to have to do. The second thing is that we're going to have to commit to further study of these foundational instructions as indispensable to who we are to be as obedient followers of Jesus. So if you don't want to be held responsible for 9.35 to 11.1, you should leave now. Because now that you're here and you're going to hear it, we're all responsible. That's what happens when we hear the word of God. I'm now responsible for that bit that I heard. But there's good news in this because he doesn't leave you alone to do it. We're going to see that in just a moment. First, let's pray. Father, in the person and life of Jesus, we have a perfect example to follow for what it looks like to be on mission. In the words of Jesus, we have clear instructions for executing the mission. And in the spirit of Jesus, we have the power to accomplish the mission. Show us today. <laughs> Make us like him. Make us like Jesus. And it's in his saving name that we pray. And all God's people said, oh man, today's going to be fun, you guys. Here we go. Jesus was born to poor Jewish parents and grew up in a small backwater town. He's a small town boy. Like all other Jewish men, he grew up learning the trade of his father. He spent the majority of his life as a carpenter. It wasn't until Jesus, <laughs> Bruce, it wasn't until he was 30 years old that he more directly began to fulfill the calling of God to be a missionary. You heard that correctly. Jesus was a missionary. Matthew tells us the story of his commissioning in chapter 3. When Jesus comes from Galilee and is baptized in the Jordan, it was in that moment that the Spirit descended upon him and launched him into public ministry. Then in chapter 4, verse 23, we read what is both a description of and purpose statement for the missional work of the Son of God. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So, so see his work. All Galilee, all teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And along the way, as he begins to do that, he starts picking up disciples for whom he will display what it looks like to live on mission as a missionary, reaching others with the good news of the kingdom of God. You can read that story in chapter 5 through chapter 9 of Matthew. And then, to make sure that we haven't lost sight of exactly what Jesus is on about in his life of outreach and missions, Matthew makes it crystal clear when he gets to chapter 9 by saying, Jesus continued. He began a work... Let me get some disciples as I do this work and teach them what it looks like. And that work doesn't change. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, doing what? The same thing. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What's the good news of the kingdom? What's the good news of the kingdom? It is that in the middle of a beautiful creation, that was meant to be perfect in absolutely every way, that then fell into absolute sin and brokenness, 
the good news is that Jesus cared so much and loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, born of a virgin, conceived by the Spirit, to live a perfect life that you couldn't live, to never be broken, to never sin. And then that he would die on a cross <laughs> to take care of all of your sins and offer forgiveness freely to you at no cost to you whatsoever. All you have to do is bend the knee and submit to him as king of your life, as master of your life, and as your savior. And then you will be saved and all your sins will be forgiven. And you'll get to live with him in a new heavens and a new earth when he comes back to consummate the work that he had started and to make sure that the kingdom of God covers the face of the earth. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was proclaiming while he healed every disease and every sickness. He did that in all the towns and villages, teaching, proclaiming, healing. So that's the mission. That's the mission of Jesus. And it struck me as I, as I watched Jesus this week, but the last two weeks I've been reading through the whole story of Matthew one could ask Jesus, why are you doing this? How have you been able, if you were there in the midst of it, as I was watching it go on, like how have you been able to sustain this, Jesus? I mean, what, what is it that empowers and motivates you to outreach and missions? I think that these are probably the most important questions that we can ask here at the end of well, can we change it? Can we actually call it Outreach and Missions Month? I, I've been wrestling with this myself. And part of my prayer is I've gone out on morning prayer walk every morning has been, Father, what, what are you asking me to do? <laughs> I've been praying that prayer, Bruce. What are you asking me to do? I've been praying that prayer that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Do you want me to go? Am I supposed to go in some way? How, Father, how should my life change? I mean, where can I fit this in? Outreach and missions. And the answer that came resoundingly back to the Father, at least one of the things, is, Matthew, you won't fit this in. Because outreach and missions won't fit into your life. Your life will need to change. I remember when God was calling me into ministry and, and part of going into ministry, into seminary, um, part, part of going to ministry was seminary, part of getting into seminary was passing a Greek, entrance, a, Greece, a Greek entrance exam, which shocker means that I had to learn Greek. <laughs> no surprise, right? So I had to take a two-year Greek course in one year to take this entrance exam. And I'll never forget the first night I sat down with about 40 or so students and Dr. Beckman spent about half an hour convincing us why we shouldn't be there taking Greek, which I thought was a really strange thing for a Greek teacher to do. He talked about how demanding Greek was going to be, how much energy and focus and work that it was going to take and that we would have to sustain over the weeks and months ahead and that he said very clearly, Greek will not fit into your life. 
It will not fit into you. Your life is going to have to change in order to learn another language. And do you know what? He was absolutely right. My life had to radically change. Things had to go in order for Greek to come in. And do you know what? Of the 40 or so students that were there on that first night at class, less than 10 took the final exam. That's the first observation I had for how Jesus was able to sustain mission. You see, big parts of even Jesus' life had to change to live on mission, not the least of which was taking on human flesh and being the incarnate son of God. He gave up a job and a home and family, to name just a few. But there's something deeper operating in Jesus, something far more fundamental for why he was committed to outreach and missions, for how he sustained it, for for what kept him motivated and moving outward and and being missions-minded. And you know what? It wasn't arguments. It wasn't about logic or reason. You know, something I've learned as I've gotten older, something that I've actually discovered the hard way is that appealing only to someone's intellect, trying to convince them of what they should do, kind of wrenching their arm to bring about a certain kind of behavior by proclaiming maybe laws or rules or commands, well, it just won't win. It just won't win them. It won't motivate someone, especially maybe in the beginning, but that that little seed will die out quick. Something else is needed to truly get someone engaged. Verse 36, chapter 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt something. He felt compassion for them because he could see that they were distressed and dejected like like sheep without a shepherd. Why was Jesus living on mission? What kept him motivated? How how was he able to sustain an outreach and missions-minded life? He cared. He had compassion. When he saw crowds of people, he realized that they were distressed and dejected because like their forefathers before them, all the way back to Isaiah and Jeremiah, they had been pressed down by leaders who were laying heavy burdens upon them rather than loving them and shepherding them. Instead of having compassion on them, they were abusing and using them so that they were dejected and lost and in need of a shepherd. And when Jesus saw the reality of real people in real distress, really lost, he felt something. And the text literally says there was an ache in his gut and a hurt in his heart. You see, it wasn't it wasn't numbers that moved Jesus or law or, or ministry goals or religious guilt. It was his heart, his feelings, his emotions. I mean, yes, tethered to truth and reality, of course, but he's showing us something. Affections so often almost always will win over logic. Don't you see this the opposite way when you're trying to convince someone of truth? Isn't it normally 
their affections tethered to something else that is so hard for them to get past? See, if you don't have the heart for something, you won't be committed. Not truly. This is what the disciples had seen in Jesus' life and mission over and over and over again. The heart of Jesus. They'd seen compassion and care, love and affection modeled for them. So how do we get this heart? How do we get that? Do you want a heart like that, like Jesus? How do we get it? He's clear. Matthew 4, 37 and 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, excuse me, Matthew 9. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, what? Pray to the master of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So how do, how do I get a heart like Jesus' heart, brothers and sisters? Pray. We must pray. We must ask our Father to open our eyes so that we see the same harvest that Jesus saw. Did you know that only one-third of our county, Chafee County, only one-third of our county claims any sort of religious affiliation? And that, listen, claiming a religious affiliation brings no certainty of actual salvation, right? Right? So, but just for the sake of argument, let's assume that it does. That still leaves almost 13,000 people living in darkness in our county. And if we extend our vision to the nations, we know that there are 3.2 billion others that need workers to labor among them so that we can rightfully and truthfully say the harvest is larger than it has ever been in the history of the world. In, infinitely larger almost than the harvest that Jesus was looking at, which he said needed to be prayed about. Do we not also need, therefore, to pray? We must pray because the need is urgent. We must pray because people are dying without Jesus. George was at a hospital sitting by a bed hearing labored breathing with the breaths getting further and further apart on Friday until they stopped. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope for Joanne. And there are so many who are going to be on hospital beds and the breath will be labored and then it'll stop and they have no hope. We must pray that we will have the heart, compassion, care, emotions, and affections of Jesus. See, Jesus shows us as his disciples to care and Jesus commands us as his disciples to pray. That's a command there. To pray for workers. So just what does the answer to that prayer look like? <laughs> well, it looks like you praying for yourself. Because that's exactly what happened to the disciples standing around Jesus, Matthew 10. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, the disciples were already with Jesus, right? We just saw that in verses 35 and 38 of Matthew 9. So this summoning, I don't believe, was a gathering. Rather, I believe the summoning is a commissioning. 
He has called them to pray, and they likely did in that very moment. I'm sure that they obeyed him. And then after praying, Jesus commissions them just as he himself had been commissioned by his father, right? That's what happened in Matthew chapter 3. He gets commissioned and launched into public ministry by the Holy Spirit coming upon him. So just as the father did for him, he provides power along with this commissioning. He gave them authority, it says. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus gave them authority? Well, I think it can only mean that he transferred his power to them. And I think it can only mean that he did that by means of his spirit. So what Jesus is doing here is anointing his disciples as he commissions them for mission with the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is he doing that? (laughs) Because after he had been bringing them everywhere on his outreach and missionary journeys... You know, his, his short-term missionary trip for the last three years? He now wants to send them out on their own to do exactly as he had done. So he gives them the Spirit so that they will be able to drive out unclean spirits and heal every disease and sickness. You see, he wants them to go to all the towns and villages. He wants them to teach and proclaim and to heal because that is the mission. And so they need a commission and the power to do it. And so he sends them out, chapter 10, verse 5. Who does he send? He sends Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. He sends James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. He sends Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. In other words, he sends them two by two. I don't think it's accidental that Matthew gives us little groupings of two. He sends them out two by two because no one was ever meant to do mission alone. (laughs) No, never. We do this together. And Jesus sends, who who else does he send? Ordinary people, (laughs) right? Among others, he sends professional fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, an insurrectionist, a traitor, and a betrayer. People just like us. Nothing special. Just followers now become Bruce missionaries. (laughs) And Jesus sends them out only after giving them instructions. Instructions. Isn't that interesting? It's something that Matthew points out here in chapter 10, verse 5. Look at it there. And he's going to point it out again in chapter 11, verse 1. So it bookends this mission discourse. If you go to chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see it there again. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, so he sends them out after he gives instructions, 10.5, and now he's finished, then Jesus moves on from there to teach and proclaim in their towns. So he sends them out, and then he gets on about the work himself. Matthew uses two different words here, actually, in chapter 10, verse 5 and 11, verse 1, for the English word that we render instruction. They can certainly mean instructions. However, I think there's a bit of a problem when we render this word in the English as instructions. Because you see, I think in our cultural context, we kind of see generally instructions as optional. Don't we? Like, here's a way, like someone gives you an instruction, especially our kids. Right? Here, here's, 
here's some instructions for you. And they're like, well, that's a way I could do it. You know, there's other ways, like the way I'm actually going to do it. Because, of course, you know, you know better, right? Like you're the expert. So you just do it your way. The word Jesus uses here also means order. Order. It's, it's really grabbing hold of what should be bound up in the word instruction. In other words, these are things that must be carried out. They're not optional. They must be followed. I mean, he is a king, right? Right? Yeah. Our son, Ezra, who is a Marine, is currently stationed until mid-December at Marine Corps Base Hawaii. Uh, Don't think that that's nice. He's only been in barracks and in the field. He's undergoing a special leadership training course there for two months. And one of the things that he's learning is how to construct orders. Now, when he told me that, being the simpleton non-military man that I am, I thought, you know, orders like, go get that, go do that. But that's not what orders are in the Marine Corps. Orders are far more extensive than that. My son is having to construct orders that are 80 and 90 pages long. These orders detail every movement and every action that a group of Marines needs to do. Every single little detail so that every individual Marine is completely clear on their particular role in a particular mission and objective. The the orders detail every need, every resource, every action. And if people don't follow these orders, people die. And so here. So it is in the mission of Jesus. So it is in the mission of his disciples, in the life of his church. If we don't follow the orders of Jesus on our mission, people will die. They will die without Jesus. So these orders are critical. These orders show us what to do. These orders show us how to do it. These orders describe our attitude as we do it. These orders give us the details on the resources that we have at our disposal to do it. And it is only after we read and understand and embrace embrace these orders, which we must do if, in fact, we are disciples of Jesus. These are not optional. It's only after we embrace them that we are ready to be sent on the mission of Jesus as disciples of Jesus, laying down our lives in outreach and mission to those who are distressed and and dejected because they are lost without Jesus. So let's review our orders together briefly. We're going to move now, okay? So look, keep your nose in your Bible. Chapter 10, second half of verse 5. I'm going to give just a teeny little bit of commentary along the way, but we're going to go through these orders together. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, outreach. Reach our people, Jesus is saying. As you go, proclaim. The kingdom of heaven has come near. There's your proclamation. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. 
cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. How can we do that? And by the way, I'm not a cessationist. I think these things apply to the church today, and I think that we can do this because we have the same authority that they did. We have the Spirit given by Jesus so that these things are possible and achievable. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. So just like Jesus trusted the Father to meet his needs when he was on mission, so we can trust the Father to meet our needs as we pursue outreach and missions. He will bring the 5,000 in, Bruce. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Look, listen now. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Jesus is kind. <laughs> he doesn't want us caught flat-footed or unaware. Unaware persecution is coming. Persecution will happen. Persecution cannot be avoided. Just like one little sheep. I mean picture this, right? One little bat tiny little white little sheep in the midst of growling. Like, I, I come from Minnesota where there's timber wolves. Muscled shoulders and gray hides and dripping fangs. Imagine a sheep surrounded by ravenous wolves. You are a sheep among wolves. You'll be in constant danger. That is, if we're following orders. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You are a sheep in your person, but not your attitude, Jesus is saying. We are not to be gullible simpletons, so be wise as a serpent. But we're also not to act as rogues, so be innocent as doves. Ours is an irreproachable honesty so that we may survive and fulfill our mission to the world. Beware of them. Because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. Okay, so get this in your heads. It's not about you. It's always about Jesus. Always helping people grow one step closer to him. Always on mission for him, our king, our savior, our master, our friend. To bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about how or what you are to speak. Our attitude should never be one of worry or anxiety. Why? Because you will be given what to say in that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father will speak through you. We have the never-failing, never-ending, never-departing present of the Holy Spirit with us. We're never alone, never on our own, so don't worry what to say. Can you believe that? Don't let, but I don't know what to say. Don't let that stop you from opening your mouth. Now, does, that, does Jesus mean here, well, you should never prepare? Of course not. Of course not. 
The Bible's filled with all kinds of preparatory instructions. But it means I should never worry about opening my mouth and proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Because why? <laughs> Do you see, what this, you see what's at stake here? Do we believe Jesus or not? That's really it. It's really that simple. He just said, don't worry. I've given you authority in the form of a spirit who will give you words that you should say in that hour. So that I get to just walk out like, he got me. So I got this. I can open my mouth because he'll give me words. This is, isn't this good? This is, what? Oh, okay, yeah. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, which there seems to be a condition in there if I'm living overtly with the name of Jesus all over me and, and like him, that will happen. So that it seems like we could turn that around and say, if that's not happening, am I not doing something that I'm supposed to be doing? And don't be surprised when even those closest to you turn against you. This is the way of Jesus, who himself was betrayed by everyone closest to him, including the men he's talking to in this moment. When one endures to the end, they will be saved. So when they persecute you in one town, just go to the next one. For truly, I tell you, we will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, which they had, how much more are the members of the household? So consider the life and trials, afflictions, and suffering of our king. If they did it to him, they will do it to us. But as the Apostle Paul observed in this way, we are filling up the sufferings of Jesus. What a calling we have. We've been counted worthy to be on the adventure of outreach and missions. Do you remember the disciples in the story of the Acts of the Apostles? Just kicking their heels after they got their butts beat? Like, we were counted worthy. We've suffered for Jesus. Celebrating. Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill your soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Your fear of those who attack you is understandable but not acceptable. As disciples, we know better. The worst they can do is end this present life in this present age. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the master, with Jesus. Their worst seems like the worst, but it's not. Instead, be in awe of God who has power over this life and the one to come. Fear him and in this way be reminded to follow him. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Even the hairs of your head or that you used to have have all been counted. So don't be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows. God is sovereign and his sovereignty is absolute. It extends even to the lowly sparrow. But your worth to him is inestimably more than the worth of the sparrow. He gave his son for you. So don't be afraid. 
He's got your back. He's designed your path. He's ordained your mission. He's aware of what you'll face. Nothing will surprise him or catch him off guard. You can trust him as you receive and carry out your orders. And we just sing of this big God. He is. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Hallelujah. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, look to the future and consider your present actions. Your decisions here have consequences there. Be sober-minded about that. To acknowledge Jesus now will bring the joy of Jesus declaring to all the elders and countless throngs in the future, he's mine. (laughs) She belongs to me. Hallelujah. So in every new situation, listen, in every new situation, brothers and sisters, a new team, a new job, a new neighborhood, a new relationship, whatever it is, why not just declare Jesus right off? Why not get that out on the table immediately? Why not establish who you are and whose you are? It not only secures your future, but it makes your present course clear. Don't assume, says Jesus, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Worship team, would you come up? What is he saying? The mission of Jesus will bring social division. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own Household, it will happen in the most intimate of relationships. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Again, (laughs) listen, that's sober, right? Like, I hope you feel that. It's sobering. But this is, again, the kindness of Jesus. He doesn't leave any of us doubting. He's not asking us as well, right? Is Jesus asking us to do anything that he himself has not done? Not a, not a bit, not a thing. He's calling us to this, the very same mission with the very same guidelines and the very same power that he had to accomplish it. So is it doable? Is it enjoyable? Who said no? You, you heard that question wrong, I think. It's hard. It's hard. So maybe we can say sometimes it doesn't feel enjoyable. I'll grant you that. You're still in the family. (laughs) But Jesus is simply calling us to follow him, to join him on the mission. Because anyone who finds his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life, hear your king, because of me, not for you, not for you. Not so we can talk about the numbers at Grace Church, absolutely not. But for him, This is all, always about Jesus. If you lose your life 
for him you will find it. You see, it's only when we let go of everything else to grab, hold more of Jesus that we get everything we ever wanted and more. There is nothing better than being on mission with Jesus. So may we let the fragrance of our prayers arise. And may the Spirit lead us on the road to sacrifice that in unity the face of the Messiah may be clear for all the world to see.